want to invite Elder Ray Sanchez to bring us the word this morning. Well, it's a privilege and a high responsibility to come and bring the word this morning, particularly because this is the first person in this pulpit expositing the text without our founding planting pastor. What do these men have in common? John Knox, John Calvin, R.C. Sproul, and Charles Spurgeon. I'm sure you're thinking many things, but one thing is that all of them used no notes when they preached, or very rarely, or very little notes when they preached. I, on the other hand, use notes upon notes, multiple notes upon notes, but I am in good company. John MacArthur uses a few pages of notes, so I'll claim uh, MacArthur's mantle this morning. There is some kind of energy and dynamic that takes place when you preach without notes. There's no doubt about it. But this morning, I want to convey to you that this will be a faithful and accurate and hermeneutically sound sermon, but with lots of notes. So it may not have the energy and dynamic and expression. That hymn, uh, or uh, yeah, that hymn we sang this morning, How Firm a Foundation. You saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Here's the point of the worship service, to sing the word, and to read the word, and to preach the word. So I plan on doing that this morning in, Mar- in uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, if you want to turn there. Jesus' three-year public ministry is coming to a close. He's about to wash the feet in the upper room. He's about to suffer and be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to endure an illegal trial by the Jews and be beaten by the Romans. He's about to be crucified. He's about to go to Golgotha. But prior to that, here in this passage, Jesus is with his close friends, his disciples, and he's in Bethany for a special dinner. In John 12, we're going to see Mary anointing the feet of Jesus in preparation for his burial. So my approach this morning is to work through this passage by focusing on each of the four individuals that are mentioned in this text. And by doing so, we're going to learn something of what it means to be a friend and child of Jesus and something of what it means to be an enemy of our Lord. In Mary and Lazarus and Martha, what it looks like to love and to serve the Lord. And in Judas, what it looks like to only love and serve himself. So let's pray before we open and read this text. Heavenly Father, open our ears this morning. Open our hearts to hear your word. Teach us through this text, Father, through your holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Let us look anew at these three siblings whom you loved and whom you shed tears over. We thank you for the opportunity to come on this 
Lord's Day to hear your word, to consider these things, and to give you all glory and honor and praise. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we read the text, let's consider for a moment chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but if you did want to turn back a page or two, you would recall that Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead in the village, and Mary and Martha in particular are in mourning. We see something of Jesus' heart here in chapter 11, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then Jesus comes to the, to the grave, to the cave where Lazarus is laid. Again, four days dead. And we know the familiar refrain of Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? By the power of God alone, a dead man lives and Lazarus is alive. And then beginning in verse 45, near the end of the chapter, we see the response of the witnesses of this miracle. In verse 45, it says that some believed. But in the very next verse, verse 46, some went to the Pharisees. Now, just a side note on that. In the heart of man, there's never indifference towards Jesus. There's no fallen man that's sort of a neutral agnostic to the claims of Christ. And so it is here with regard to those people who witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. Some believed and some went to the Pharisees. At the end of the chapter here, we have a fly-on-the-wall perspective. We're listening in to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're trying to determine what they're going to do about this Jesus. What do we do about this so-called Messiah who raised Lazarus from the dead? They could not deny that. And then in verse 53, at the end of their debate, they come to a decision. And they say, and this is right from the text, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. We know that there had been assassination attempts in the past. We know that they wanted to see Jesus dead. But here in chapter 11, they committed to finally finish the murder of Jesus. And that's the context for this dinner in Bethany. And let me read John chapter 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, his, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. This is God's holy word. Jesus is in Bethany, a couple miles east of Jerusalem, and he's eating dinner at Simon the leper's house. We know this from the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark. Simon the leper, in all likelihood, was not still a leper, and it's not a stretch to think that Jesus healed him. In verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to the three familiar siblings, Lazarus, who's reclining at the dinner table with Jesus, no doubt gleefully reflecting on his no longer being four days dead. And you have Martha, who's serving them all. And then there's Mary, Sister Mary, who anoints Jesus with this expensive ointment and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And then in verse 4, there is Judas, who complains and critiques Mary for her waste. So first, this morning, we'll start with Martha. In the text here, there are only two words in this, again, in this entire passage about Martha. The text says in verse 2, Martha serves. Now that could be a whole sermon, couldn't it? But we have to look back at a previous incident in Martha's life to see the importance of these two words here in John chapter 12. So if you're able, will you turn to Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And let me just read this, because this is, this is important for understanding these two powerful verses in John 12. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38, this is a different time. An earlier time where we're introduced to Martha and Mary and their doing similar things. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So not Simon's house, but this time earlier, it's her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha opened her home in this earlier story. And we see from both of these passages that she's a tried and true servant. She's a readiness to serve. And she demonstrates hospitality. Now I'm going to camp out for a second on this idea of hospitality. Hospitality is not simply something you say that you do. You have to demonstrate it. You have to show it. Listen to these two passages from Paul which describe the importance of hospitality. The first is 1 Timothy 5.10, where Paul's addressing widows. 
He says, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. She's shown hospitality. Or Romans 12, 13 and 14, Paul says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. So let me ask a question. If Martha was at home with her sister and her brother, would making them dinner be showing hospitality? Can you show hospitality with your immediate family members? When, when we go home this afternoon, will my wife be demonstrating hospitality to me and the kids? I don't think so. I think hospitality is welcoming into your home others, even strangers, outsiders. It is welcoming believers, excuse me, but it could be unbelievers, but believers outside of your immediate family into your home. The word family related to hospitality includes words like hospital, hotel, and host. You get the idea. It is serving fellow believers in your home. It is caring for others in the most intimate place that God has given you, that place that you're in the most, and that is your home. Hospitality had a central role in the early church. We see this time and again in the book of Acts and in the epistles, and I think it should have, I know we would acknowledge that it should have a central role in the 21st century church. Hospitality is even one of the qualifications of an elder. See that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But I think it's fair to say that hospitality in many Christian communities is often neglected. And in a time of, we won't call them cell phones, we'll call them self phones. In a time of self phones and uh, virtual reality, what we need now more than ever is in-person, real, home fellowship. And anyone can show hospitality. Anyone has, that has a place that they call home. You know, the Bible doesn't say that uh, you need a Berkshire Hathaway home to show hospitality. It does not say an open floor plan or a den is necessary. It does not say fine china needs to be put out, although that might be nice. It does not say that fine dining and prime rib is required, though if you want to invite the Sanchez family over, it will take the prime rib. But what is needed to show hospitality is a heart of gratitude. And whatever else you can say about Martha, particularly in the Luke 10 passage, we have to recognize in this passage here, she opened her home and she served with the heart of gratitude. But as grateful as Martha was, as hardworking and service-oriented as she was, her service became a distraction. You see that in verse 40. But to be more precise, it was not service that distracted her. It was much serving. And for Martha, what, what was definitely a good thing uh, was too much of a good thing, apparently. She began to look at others. She began to say, what were they doing? Why weren't they helping? How come they continue to talk at the church potluck when I'm doing the dishes? Mary, or excuse me, Martha here in Luke 10, she looks specifically at her sister. 
who wasn't serving at all. And I wonder, was, was Martha envious? Was she jealous? Was she angry? I don't know all the motives, but I, I do know that she wanted fairness. Maybe she wanted an opportunity herself to sit at the feet of Jesus. Perhaps she wanted some recognition, but whatever the motive, she was certainly frustrated with her sister who left her to do all the work. And in response to Martha's complaint, Jesus, is, it seems to me, is serious. Perhaps he's even stern, and I say that because he does say her name twice, which, is a, which, which points to the seriousness of, this, of the situation. Martha, Martha. And yet he lovingly responds to her and tell her she, tells her she's anxious about many things. Now, over the last couple of years, we've heard a lot about comorbidities. And I have to say here in this passage, it seems, and from our own experience, that there's a lot of co-anxieties and co-troubles. And I think those often complicate or add to or probably are factors in our regular frustration and our suffering and our difficulties in life, those co-anxieties and co-troubles. And I know you've heard many sermons about Martha and Mary. And I know that you've heard that Mary was the hero, perhaps, and that Martha was the anti-hero, where Martha's caught up in service and, and sacrifice, while blessed Sister Mary is doing all of the free worship of Jesus. And it's true that in Luke 10, Martha's reproved. She's corrected. But in our text this morning in John 12, what does it say? With three weeks to go in Jesus's, uh, excuse me, in one week to go in Jesus's three-year public ministry, in the house of Simon the leper, who himself was probably healed from leprosy, what is Martha doing? She's serving again. What a testimony that is. Think about that. Jesus' correction and perhaps even his rebuke did not mean that she should not serve at all. Jesus did not give her a kind of zero-sum corrective where worship is good and serving is bad. In the intervening time between Luke 10 and John 12, however long that was, Martha had learned to let go of many troubles and many anxieties, and she found joy again in serving her Messiah. And here, here's the lesson here. Martha continued to serve. Again, Jesus' correction was not for her to stop serving, but to serve with her eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of her faith. She was to serve while not looking at others. She took Jesus' correction in Luke 10, and she was certainly positively sanctified by the time we get to John chapter 12. The text says, Martha served. And this is a lesson for us to take hold of as well. When frustration and anxiety and trouble comes, I think the text, I think Christ would tell us, do not stop serving and using the gifts God has bestowed upon you including demonstrating hospitality. Hospitality with gratitude. So John gives us two simple words demonstrating Martha's gifting, her humility, her change of heart, and her love for Jesus. It says that Martha served. And what a testimony I think that is. 
in light of Luke chapter 10. Next, we turn to Lazarus. Now, here's a guy living the high life, wouldn't you say? The text says he's reclining at the table with the Lord. And if anyone could confidently yet humbly sit and recline next to the Lord of life, this, was, this would be Lazarus, a man who was once four days dead. We saw in chapter 11 that the religious leaders made these final plans to put Jesus to death. But what about the one who was the miracle? What about Lazarus? So again, look at verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but, of, but also to see Lazarus. He was like a spectacle. Why did they come to see Lazarus? Because he had raised, Jesus had raised him from the dead. So what did the chief priests decide to do about that? They made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. And why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now how about that testimony? The Jews hated Lazarus because he was a living, breathing work, a living, breathing evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. But the Jews also hated Lazarus simply because they hated Jesus. We see this in John 15 in the upper room. Judas had already been sent away. Jesus had already washed the feet. And he says to his disciples, the 11 disciples that were there, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world... It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so I ask, would you say that in 1955 America, would you say that the sting of these words here in John 15 have the same punch as they do today? Today, like many other times throughout history, we can really feel these words, that the world hates you. Now, over a year ago, Aaron Wren wrote a significant and timely article called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. Some of you are familiar with it. And in it, he describes three distinct stages of Christianity. And let me read this uh, three-stage paradigm. I think this is really helpful to see where we're at and why Jesus would say that the world hates us. And the world certainly hated Christians in 1955. But I think it's different today. And here's, here's the paradigm that he lays out. Uh, Rin says that uh, we're currently in positive world. And uh, he says that's anything pre-1994. And in positive world, it's a society that retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. A publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society. And when you violate them, you, that could bring negative consequences to you socially. That was clearly true in 1955. But then there's neutral world, and, and Rin says that's 1994 to 2014. This is a society that takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. 
Christianity no longer has privileged status, but it's, it's disfavored. It's not, it's not clearly disfavored, but it's sort of running on hard ground. Being publicly known as a Christian is neither positive nor negative. And Christianity is a valid option within the pluralistic public square. And then, of course, there's a residual effect in terms of the Christian moral norms that are, that are floating. But lastly, and this is the stage Wren says that we're in now, is negative world. Again, he says that's 2014 to the present. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Think about our major institutions. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and to the new public moral order. Subscribing to a Christian moral view or violating the current secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, I might quibble over the dates that Wren sets forth here, but I do agree with this three-stage model. And I do think we're in a kind of negative world in our culture. Now, now it's true that um, some areas are more hotter than others. You might say that California is a little hotter than Arkansas. You may say that some professions are a little hotter than others. Uh, education might be a little hotter and more negative than other professions, like being a self-employed electrician. But all things being equal, you who follow Christ in the year of our Lord 2023 are facing heat and hate in this negative world. In the case of Lazarus, he was a witness and a light for Christ. How could he not be? He was resurrected from the dead. But necessarily then, he's a witness and a light against the world. Do you see that? To be a witness and a light for Christ is necessarily to be a witness and a light against the world, the dark world. The text says of Lazarus that on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Again, what a testimony that is. And so I ask you, are many going away and believing in Jesus on account of you? So now you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, hold on, Ray, you can't compare me to Lazarus, who was resurrected from that. I wasn't resurrected. How can I be a witness like Lazarus? So I say to you, weren't you brought from death to life? Don't you have a testimony of one lost and now found? Weren't you dead in your trespasses and now alive in Christ? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And by implication of this verse that we read, let's let our light shine before others so that they may hate us as they hated Lazarus and as they hated Christ. Now, next we turn to Mary. Mary was a true lover of Jesus, and perhaps no other in the New Testament is so consistently devoted to the Lord. What a precious testimony she has. Everywhere we find Mary, we see her marveling and worshiping Jesus. 
taking the crown of her glory, her hair, and wiping the feet of the Lord Jesus. In verse 3, it says, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, this is like a perfume, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You know, Mary's love and her passion for Jesus overflowed. She did not just have an academic understanding or knowledge of Jesus. She, was, she, she loved him and knew him intimately. In the two parallel passage, passages, we learn that Mary also anointed the head of Jesus. And there's much theology that we could draw from that, which we won't get to today. It also says that she had an alabaster flask. And it had about 12 ounces of this perfume. And this perfume, it says, I think in Mark, was 300 denarii, which is almost a year's wages. This was an expensive vial of perfume. Now, we don't know for certain if Mary knew that she was preparing Jesus for burial. The text is not clear about that. But Jesus does say in Mark 14 that she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So whether she knew it or not, she was anointing Jesus for burial, both his feet and his head. And that was an act of pure love and devotion. She's a model, Sister Mary is, of giving um, unreservedly, without commitment, or with full commitment, but with unreserved commitment, In Arthur Pink's four-volume exposition of the Gospel of John, he writes this about Mary. And I'd like to take the opportunity to read it, though it's a little long. Uh, Pink writes, Mary came, and that too at the moment when the world was expressing its deepest hatred of him, to pour out what she had long treasured up, that which was most valuable to her, all she had upon earth, upon the person of the one who had made her heart captive and absorbed her affections. She thought not of Simon the leper. She passed the disciples by, her brother and her sister in the flesh and in the Lord, engaged not her attention then. Jesus only filled her soul. Her eyes were upon him. Adoration and homage, worship, blessing, was her one thought, and that in honor of the one who was all in all to her, and surely such worship was most refreshing to him. What a testimony we have in Martha, who loved unreservedly. Lastly, we want to turn to Judas, and here I'll be brief. Look at verse 4. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why did Judas say this? Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, Judas is one of the 12. 
didn't he go out two by two to evangelize? Didn't he walk with Jesus for three years on, uh, with, with Jesus in his three-year earthly ministry? And it says here that he was in charge of the money. So clearly the other disciples trusted him. Look at the passage that we read in Proverbs today, uh, chapter 119. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. That could not be more literally true of Judas. But you know, by the will of the sovereign king, here he is at Simon's house. He's watching skeptically as Martha served. He's staring in bewilderment at a resurrected Lazarus. And he's probably seething over Mary's devotion. And I wonder how many of the Ten Commandments did Judas violate here, just in this text? The ninth, because he bore false witness, because he asked a disingenuous question. The tenth, because he was coveting, wanting the money that was not his. The eighth, stealing, because he had stolen the money already from the money bag. And clearly the first commandment, because he had an idol, and probably many, that he worshipped and put before the one true God. Judas, Judas was a treacherous counterfeit. He's the ultimate example of hypocrisy and deceit and betrayal. And he attacked Mary here in this passage under the pretense of helping the poor. He's not even direct, is he? He's deceitful. He's manipulative. He even betrayed our Lord with a kiss. But our Lord is a great defender of his covenant people. Our God is a mighty fortress indeed. Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone. And I wonder if we say that when we read this text. Do we read that like we read Lazarus come forth? Do we read, leave her alone? Because this is what Jesus said to Judas. And he defends us still today as our mediator. And let me finish with this in regard to Judas. Well, the world hated Lazarus because the Lord chose him out of the world. We saw that in John 15. But the world did not hate Judas because Judas was a son of perdition. Mary anointed Jesus, his feet and his head, but Judas himself wished to be anointed. He wanted wealth and position and power. Martha served Jesus, but Judas only served himself. And here, let me, let me bring this to a close. The binding characteristic, it seems to me, of these three siblings was gratitude. Mary gave out of gratitude. Martha served with gratitude. And no doubt, Lazarus communed with Jesus with a heart of gratitude, having been raised from the dead. And we can learn much from these three devoted siblings, imperfect as they were. We can be hospitable and servant-minded like Martha. We can be devoted and sacrificial like Mary. We can be comforted and confident 
like Lazarus, all bound together with a heart of gratitude. And you know, one day, for all eternity, we're going to join Mary in blessed worship. We're going to join Martha in loving devotion to our Lord. And we're going to join Lazarus while supping with the Lord for all eternity. And no longer will there be any deceitful, treacherous, evil men. No longer will there be negative world that we're trying to pilgrimage through. But because of Christ's resurrection power and the fact that He died for us and paid the penalty for our sin, we will have made it through the pilgrimage and we will enter into the celestial city with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Mary will be there and Martha will be there and Lazarus will be there and Judas will not. And we'll praise Him for all eternity. So this morning and this week, I pray that we would go out from here with gratitude, letting our light shine before men so they may see our good works and glorify God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a joy to consider these three saints of old, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. It is a joy to open your word and dig into the text and let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts. We praise your holy name this morning. I do pray, Lord God, that as we draw the worship service to a close, that you would go with us this week. We know you live in our hearts. We know you'll never leave us nor forsake us. We know you are our great defender, a mighty fortress. But often, Lord, we uh, wrestle with our fickleness and emotions and simplicity and selfishness, and we take our eyes off of you and put our eyes on our problems. So I pray, Lord God, that you would uh, direct us to you, show us your face. Take not your face from us, Lord, this week. And in the coming months, as we at Grace Fresno seek to be faithful to you, as we wait upon the servant that you have already determined would be here in eternity past. So, Lord, we give you praise and honor and glory this morning, and thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.